Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. to bring up a sore subject, but uh, 2020 has been dubbed the year that the world stood still. A lot of things came to a halt or paused that year, but uh, one thing never did, and that was the advancement of the gospel. With God the advancement of the gospel is something that is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. That's the underlying current of our text today in Acts chapter 5. And as we turn there, let's remind ourselves of the context, especially for those who are just joining us. In our journey through the book of Acts, Jesus told the disciples in in sort of the key verse in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them and empower them to be witnesses from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. That's their mission. Their mission is to be witnesses. And so far, we're still in Jerusalem. By the end of the book of Acts, we're going to end up in Rome and to the uttermost. Uh, and uh, so far, though, we're still in Jerusalem. The church has been birthed by the Holy Spirit that came in a very dramatic fashion in Acts chapter 2. He came just as promised, and the number of disciples is growing rapidly first it was oh, a few thousand got saved then five thousand and 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 basically that was the last number we saw in the book of acts and it will be they they stopped counting the church is just it's growing rapidly and as as church growth always does it's going to create some problems both within and from without from within we got to we got to look within the church last week and what did we see there we saw some hypocrisy uh, and some judgment took place, and God made uh, reaffirmed His presence in a unique way to remind people that it, that He's holy, and this following Christ thing isn't something to do just half-heartedly. And then uh, it, there's some problems from without that we've also seen recently. Uh, persecution starts to flare up. It is now illegal to preach and teach in Jesus' name. That'll get you thrown behind bars. And so Judaism is basically forcing the church out. Remember, the church is still meeting in the temple area, in the temple mount, and they're going to begin forcing the church out of that area. And basically, the church is now becoming its own separate entity, as it is today. Let's start in verse 12. At the hands of the apostles... Many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them, 
However, the people did hold them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly being added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them and any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. And so first in our outline, we're going to see God continues to work in, in, in miraculous ways through the apostles. Last week's episode with Ananias and Sapphira uh, definitely produced, you can see it in the text there, some fear and some respect for the church. Can you imagine if someone just kind of like dropped dead in our congregation for their hypocrisy? Uh, I don't think any of us would be left standing here. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, word would spread in town. Uh, wow, uh, God is holy, and he's not something to mess with, right? So there's this half-heartedness that, that's been dealt with in Jerusalem, saying you don't want to follow Jesus just half-heartedly. Uh, this is a big deal that you're a part of. And uh, anyway, they uh, they saw that the church has God's fingerprints all over it, though some some saw that, and they wanted to be a part of it. They're like, God God is with the church, and I'm, I'm going to join it. So it, despite last week's hypocrisy episode, and think about that, this, the, the threats from the outside, from the Sanhedrin, God continues to work, and the church continues to grow. Despite problems within, despite problems without, the church is growing, the church is advancing. And I found this surprisingly relevant and encouraging because even though the church is messy, would you guys admit that the church is messy with me? Right? A bunch of fallen sinners struggling with different beliefs and things that they grew up with and all the junk in their lives and we're all learning. Yeah, and we're all at different stages in our growth and our walk with the Lord. It's a messy business. Sometimes I feel like it takes forever to get anything done in the church. Okay, uh, no offense to our church. It's, it's church. But church is messy. And even though it is, even though you've got external persecutions, even though you've got internal hypocrisy, giving the church a bad rap, it doesn't stop it. It doesn't stop God's church. Jesus said, what? I'm going to build my church. I will build it. And nothing can stop him from building his church. That's what you see here in this chapter. It's an encouraging reminder, I think, of how gracious God is. Some of you have been part of churches where there's been serious moral failure occur at times among leadership or members giving the church a bad reputation. And you should expect that because we're in a spiritual battle. And even though uh, the church that you were a part of maybe was shook up a bit, it bounced back, didn't it? By God's grace, it bounces back. Even though God's people are threatened in many countries in the world today, their life is on the line just for going to church this morning in some places in the world. Those are some of the countries where the church is actually growing the fastest. Like Iran. 
Notice at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders are taking place at an extraordinary level. It says all are being healed. And I want to remind you of the emphasis on the apostles in this because God is affirming their leadership. He's affirming their teaching. He's affirming his presence with this new movement. Remember, for for hundreds of years, they're used to thinking of the temple and Judaism and the sacrificial system and all this is where God's at. This, if you want God's presence, you got to go to the temple. You got to be uh, baptized into Judaism, sort of thing. And now it's it's shifting. We're moving from an old covenant to a new covenant. Okay, so God has to affirm that He's with the new movement. I mean, think of living in this era, going from all of this ancient tradition and, and Moses and the Old Testament law to now living by grace through faith in Christ. That's no small switch. I'm not sure what I would have done if I was living back then. How do you just give up on all of that and switch to this new, this new, this new movement? The Apostle Paul said, the Jews seek for a sign. And who's he trying to reach right now? The Jew. The gospel goes to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. Jews seek for a sign. What is God allowing the apostles to do? Signs and wonders. God is giving Israel sign after sign after sign that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that they crucified. See, God's program is in transition in Acts, and he's affirming the transition for them so that there's no mistake that Jesus is the Messiah. No one in Jerusalem is going to say on that day when they stand before God, I didn't know. You didn't give me enough evidence. And it's the same with us. Even Romans 1 says that creation itself is enough evidence to leave men without excuse before a holy God, creator God. The text is is amazing. It says they were even laying people in the streets on, in, on cots and pallets just with the hope that Peter's shadow would touch them and they would be healed. Isn't that crazy? So think of it like people are really looking up to Peter now. Not that he's the first pope or anything like that, but he is a leader in the church. And uh, Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter's doing that now. Imagine now if Peter hadn't went through his, his blunder a little while back. Imagine how big-headed he would be. People just want my shadow to touch him. Isn't that crazy? Aren't you glad that Peter went through that blunder and failure before he got to this point? See, back then he used to rely on himself. Now he's relying on the Lord. He used to live for himself. Now he's living for the Lord. It's not about Peter anymore. So he can actually now step into this position and do it with the right heart. I love that about Peter's story. And he seems to do that with each one of us at a point in our lives. God teaches us that lesson. Anyway, people were hoping Peter's shadow would just touch him. And uh, it doesn't say that they were actually being healed by it. uh, But the Gospels do record a woman being healed simply for touching, you remember, like the hem of Jesus' garment. A woman who suffered hemorrhage for for years. I just barely touched Jesus' garment, and, she, and he felt power go out from him, and she was healed instantly. And he said, who touched me, right? So 
Um, he could even heal people from a distance. Jesus could, without even being there. But because I'm, I say that, because I, I find it highly likely that it that it was happening, and uh, that people were being healed as they were close to Peter. In that case, it affirms for us that Acts. Think about this. If this is true, it affirms for us that Acts is the continuing Acts of who? Jesus, through the apostles, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is has ascended, but he's still ministering through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's pretty awesome. Secondly, we see the brief arrest of the apostles in verses 17 through 21. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Quick jailbreak, huh? Just got in, angel busts them out. The religious leaders, especially the high priest and the Sadducees, were enraged. The the Sanhedrin, what you're looking at here, uh, the high priest and his associates, uh, we've looked at these guys a lot in the Gospel of Mark. The the Sanhedrin made up of seventy leading Israel's uh, or seventy of Israel's leading men, Jewish men. Um, this was kind of like their uh, the Supreme Court in Israel, and in, and this Supreme Court that they're calling the Council or the Sanhedrin had two major groups in it: the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You also had the Essenes, but. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were a little different. The Sadducees were more aristocratic in nature, socio-political. They were, they were more political, and they were threatened, I think, by two things. One of them is the influence that the apostles are having over the people. I think the Sadducees recognize that they are being, the people understand that the Sadducees put Jesus to death wrongfully. And uh, people are blaming the Sadducees for that. And uh, they're losing power and influence. And then secondly, the, the Sadducees also didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in, in supernatural events, occurrences. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And that's why the Sadducees were Sadducee, because they didn't have any hope. Um. But I think when Luke goes to write this, he, he kind of writes it with a smile. Because here you got the Sadducees who don't believe in angels, and what happens? An angel busts out their prisoners. <laughs> An angel just confounded their plans. Um, their plan did not come together. And so I find that ironic and somewhat humorous. And uh, look what God busted them out for. To go, to take a stand, and to speak. Go, stand, and speak. Tell people about Jesus. Go tell people about Jesus. Take a stand. Stand firm. Speak to them. And that's what witnesses do, right? We just tell people 
about what Jesus has done. We never want to stop seeking to share the message of life. That's what God's saying through this, getting them out of jail. Go, stand, speak, keep sharing. Don't let this stop you. They tell people, witnesses tell people where they can find life. In some of your Bibles, the life is capitalized. Life. Whose life? Jesus' life. Jesus equals life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. If you have Jesus, you have life. Witnesses point people to Jesus where they can find life, both spiritual life and eternal life. Anyway, the angel says, don't stop sharing the good news with people. Let's look at verse 21. When the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. Oh, great. What, what's going to happen now? But someone came and reported to them, the men that you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. Third thing we see is the re-arrest of the apostles. The re-arrest of the apostles. When the religious leaders send for the apostles, nobody can find them. They're not in jail anymore. The prisons, isn't this funny? The prison's locked up. The guards are still in place, but the apostles aren't there. That was a divine jailbreak. I mean, no one even saw it happen, and they're all just kind of scratching their heads like, what in the world? I can't find a can't find a tunnel. I didn't give them a shovel. They didn't dig their way out. And and Luke mentions that it was a public jail. So this was a place, I think, that they were put on display in order to dissuade the church from continuing to preach, basically saying, uh, this is what happens when you preach the gospel. You get thrown in jail. Well, this public jail that was being watched is now empty. And that's a divine jailbreak. But uh, anyway, it's not long before they, they hear a report that the apostles are teaching the people again publicly. And again, remind yourself, this is blatantly against the law now. They're doing the exact opposite of what they were told to do. And so they go and get them again, but because uh, the religious leaders fear the people, they have to treat the apostles respectfully. Luke noted that. If they start to, that tells you how, like, how much favor the apostles had with the people. And remember, there's thousands of them that, that are, like, you know, that, that want access to the apostles. They want to hear what the apostles are saying and teaching. And anyway, for, for the authorities now to actually lay hands on the apostles roughly is going to end well. It's not going to end well for the, for the authorities. And so uh, they are being handled respectfully. And you might be asking at this point, what was the point of God releasing them only for them to be rearrested again? Okay, 
they they were they were arrested, thrown in jail, released, rearrested again the next day. What's up with that? Well, it tells us God did not get them out of jail to keep them from being rearrested again, or from being arrested again. And I like what one man said about it. The text is not saying that every time you end up in jail, God's going to bail you out. Okay, even when you're jailed for Jesus. I think most of us have uh, heard stories from places like Colombia or maybe India or China, people who end up in jail for their faith, and even though the most faithful of God's people prayed and people fasted around the world, uh, they never made it out alive. We've heard stories like that, haven't we? So that's not the point. The point is that nothing can stop God when he wants to act. Nothing can stop God from advancing the gospel. The gospel's going to advance. You see, the leaders are trying within their power to do everything they can to stop or dissuade the church, to sort of pop their balloon. And God's power over them and the circumstances is very powerfully being demonstrated. You can arrest them, I'll let them back out. And this basically pops the balloon of the the Sanhedrin. You'll see this by the end of the chapter. If God is if this plan and action is of men, it, it'll be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. And you're going to be found fighting against God. That's what God's teaching the Sanhedrin, the leadership, everybody. They're powerless when God wants to act, powerless to stop the spread of the gospel when it comes down to it. It reminds us, I think, of God's attribute of omnipotence. God is omnipotent. He's all Powerful, omni meaning all, potent meaning powerful. You guys all have, uh, you guys have heard of people talk about strong smells as something that's potent, right? Like your gym bag. It's, it's potent. And all the guys are like, yeah, smell my gym bag, man. It reeks. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's awful, man. Smell mine. Or, that's like an old Jeff Foxworthy joke or something. But, uh, Men just bragging about how much stuff stinks. Kind of like that buck I shot yesterday. I shot a really nice buck yesterday. But, man, you know what they do, right? They stink. I'll just say that. And look up why they stink. They have scent glands on their back legs. And you know what's above their back legs. So, um, those big, rutting bucks, just they just stink. And, uh, anyway, God is potent not in a smelly sense he's just he's powerful he's the almighty one the almighty with whom all things are possible this is how the bible talks about god he he does whatever he wants within or in accordance with his will and his nature god is all powerful but he cannot lie for example that goes against his, his will and his nature. He won't lie. But he is all-powerful. Some say, God's all-powerful. Can he make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? 
Don't fall for that one. Okay? Nothing is too hard for God, though. He will accomplish His will. He will accomplish His purpose. All that He desires, He accomplishes. He's never backed into a corner that He can't get out of. I think the Red Sea crossing is one of the greatest examples of that. Here's Israel backed into a corner and they're, they're all just crying out for their lives and blaming Moses for putting him in, in this, this position where the Egyptians are going to come and just crush them. They've got mountains on both sides and the Red Sea here. Well, what, is, what was that song we just sang? He turns seas into highways. Dry land. He's never backed into a corner that he can't get out of. It doesn't happen for him. He's all-powerful. You never have to wonder when you're in some sort of undesirable circumstance if God has the power to get you out of it. He does have the power. We never question God's power. Does God have the power to heal you? No? Yeah, he does. He doesn't change. He's always got the power. But when we go to pray, when we go to seek healing, things like this, what do we pray? We pray according to his will. We pray according to his will. And we are content. We need to be content with whatever form his will takes. One way or another, you got to remember that God is going to use whatever you're going through. God is still fully capable of uh, fully capable of doing signs and wonders today, right? He is still very fully capable of doing miracles and I believe he does. He does do miracles. But at the same time, he often doesn't. He often doesn't. There's many times where very godly people do not get their miracle that they long for. Though many very godly people are praying for them. Maybe even fasting for them. They don't get their miracle. Why is that? For one, this isn't our home. Sometimes God chooses to be glorified through a miracle. And sometimes God chooses to be glorified by the way that his, peace, his people continue to trust in him and hope in him and accept his will despite the undesirable circumstance that goes on. Sometimes he's going to use that undesirable circumstance to push someone closer to himself, to make them seek him, to think about eternal things. One way or another, whatever God's will is, he's going to use it. And I find that he tends to use, even more than a miracle, the believer who continues to trust in him and hope in him and find joy in him despite not getting their miracle. 
This passage shows us that, as well, that when God calls us to serve, it is a privilege. It's a privilege because God is never desperate. He's never just desperate for help. Like when we ask for volunteers at the church or people to serve in some capacity, never get the idea that God's desperate. Okay, this is an opportunity for you to be a part of what God himself is doing. And it's an opportunity for you to invest your life in what really matters forever. I like what Mordecai said to Esther when the Jews were under the threat of being wiped out. Once again, Esther was queen and she had an opportunity to at least speak to the king and prevent a Jewish genocide. And Mordecai said to Esther, and Mordecai uh, adopted Esther, like, like, like her father. And so he says to this, he says this to her, don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, look at Mordecai's theology. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come for the Jews. It will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. You see, so even if Esther doesn't speak up, Mordecai is convinced God's still going to preserve the Jewish nation. Like he always does, like he always has. He's going to do it through someone or something. And, and Mordecai is saying, basically, God's going to intervene, but maybe, Esther, God wants to use you this time. This is your opportunity to, be a, to do something big, to be a part of his plan. Maybe this is what he has been preparing you for for the last several years and for your life. Maybe you, you've come to this position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Let's keep going in verse 27. When they had brought them, they stood before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders to not to continue teaching in this name. And yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers... Our fathers, remember these, these apostles are Jewish. And he's talking to the Sanhedrin, the council, who are Jewish. And he's saying, the God of our fathers, together, our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. And he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So next we see the apostles before the council. They're standing before this, this council that sat in sort of a horseshoe shape, and they'd be standing in the middle, and the Sanhedrin can, can kind of see what each other are thinking. They're glancing across the room at their, their associates. Helps them communicate. But... Uh, Apostles are in the middle, and notice that it's not just Peter and John like it was in the last chapter that stand in the middle. It's the 12, the 12 apostles standing in the same place where Jesus stood before the same council. 
And uh, I think the reason they've brought all of them this time is because they want to make a statement to the people. They want to increase their threat against the church. Okay, we did two last time. Now we're taking all the church leaders, all 12 of them, and we are going to basically, we're going to threaten all of them. And they're trying, I think, to dissuade the church. The high priest reminds them, though, of what they're charged with, and that's disobeying the strict orders not to teach in Jesus' name. Yet, what did they do? Instead of quit preaching, they filled Jerusalem with teaching. Isn't that awesome? I like to think that when they said that, you know, the apostles started fist bumping each other. Like, yeah, we filled Jerusalem. Let's go to Judea, you know. <laughs> Let's go to the next part of the mission. But they filled Jerusalem with the teaching rather than listening to the Sanhedrin. And so they're doing exactly what Jesus commanded to do, and they're obeying God rather than man. And that, as something we saw a couple of weeks ago, it's a key to living bold lives for Jesus. We want to remember that no matter what a human court considers legal or illegal, we must ultimately answer to a higher court. We answer to God for our lives. He is the ultimate judge that we will all bow before. And his Heavenly court is the court that is going to judge all other earthly courts. The heavenly court in heaven rules over all heavenly courts. And so we operate in accordance with the heavenly court rather than just an earthly court. And that's going to mean that civil disobedience for Christians is sometimes necessary. Notice that the apostles, though they don't beg for their life, uh, you can imagine running through their minds is the thought that, is this how we're going to go? Is this going to be our last stand? Are they going to crucify us just like they crucified Jesus? Because they don't know when their life's going to end. They could all be crucified that same evening. But instead of saying, well, We'll, st we'll stop now. Just, you know, don't hurt us. It's the exact opposite. They actually take a stand. They stand firm. They reinforce the truth. They start preaching the gospel to them. They say, Jesus is the Messiah that you crucified, and in so doing, actually, for foreordained, you fulfilled God's foreordained plan. Isn't that interesting? You see why nothing can stop God. Even when the Sanhedrin stied, tried to crucify Jesus and take out the Son of God, they fulfilled God's plan. It's unstoppable. But just think this, too. I mean, not many days ago, these men that are sitting on these, these chairs in a circle, just a couple of months ago, cried out to Jesus, cried out about Jesus, crucify him. Remember Pilate? What shall I do with Jesus? And they said, crucify him. What else did they say? His blood be on us in our hands. Pilate washed his hands. They said, his blood be on you then and on your children. And now what do they not like? They don't like his blood on their conscience. Did you catch that? You uh, insist 
you're, 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 you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, they're the ones who said a couple of months ago, his blood be on us and our children. Isn't that interesting? They don't like his blood on their guilty conscience. Peter gives them hope, though. He says, your conscience can be freed. Your sins can be forgiven if, if you'll just repent and accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as your Savior. You, you, can, you can have your conscience freed if you just change your mind about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. That's incredible grace, by the way. The men who actually crucified Jesus are being offered forgiveness and everlasting life. I asked the question last time, what's the last time when's the last time uh, you did something that God just can't forgive you of? Something that's just so bad, God could never forgive you. David committed adultery and killed a man, killed her, killed her husband. God forgave David. These men uh, crucified Jesus, and they're still being offered forgiveness. There's no limit. And the same holds true today. If you'll just trust Christ, you'll find... A free conscience. You'll find a free conscience from guilt and shame. You'll find new spiritual life. And the prince will welcome you into his kingdom. And I wish everybody would respond to that good news, but as we've been learning through Acts, not everybody's going to, right? Not everybody's going to respond to the good news, even when the preaching is spirit-filled. Even through the apostle Peter. The reality is many aren't going to respond. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. They're just going to kill them instead of let the message have its place in their heart. Their hearts were hardened to the message. Even though the message is clear, even though the evidence is there, even though the Spirit of God is working, many of them refuse, just refuse to believe. They deny the evidence right before their eyes. They respond to their own conviction of sin with anger, saying, Basically, is what they're saying, how dare you say we need to repent and receive forgiveness? And you know what they're thinking in their minds is, we're children of Abraham. We're saved because we're children of Abraham. We don't need to repent. Gentiles need to repent. That was their mindset. How dare you say we we need to repent and receive forgiveness? Quite honestly, that's how a lot of people respond to the message today. People don't want to hear that they're sinners and they need to repent. We don't want to hear that there's such a thing as right and wrong. We don't want to hear about a heaven or a hell. We don't want a God that we're accountable to. I don't want any authority figures in my life. We don't want we we all want our best life now, don't we? We want our best life now and we want to do it the way we want to and we don't want anybody telling us otherwise. And that's the greatest Virtue in this world is just do whatever you want to do. You be true to yourself. That's the greatest virtue in our culture, and the greatest sin is how dare you stop somebody from doing that, being who they want to be. That's where our culture's at. And that's pretty sad to think that this is your only life and that you can have a happy life just by doing what you want to do. i got to tell you, i got to break the news for you. It's not going to turn out well. It does not end well, both in this life or the next. Just doing what you want to do. You will suffer the consequences for it. 
That's the problem with doing things our way. It just doesn't work. And you see the fruit of it, don't you, in our society? Our society's breaking down. It's crumbling. We've left Judeo-Christian virtues and values, and now we're just going to do our own thing. No God anymore. And what do you see? You see people in utter ruin, physically, mentally, spiritually. People are in ruin today. They have no hope. They have no life. They have no purpose. They have no joy. And it's because they're trying to get, they're trying to do their own thing rather than doing things God's way. If you want to find life with a capital L, <laughs> if you want eternal life, you got to trust Christ. And you got to start doing life His way. You will find that doing things His way according to His word will bring incredible blessing to your life. You'll find out what it's like to really live. You remember that, uh, what was that, that Lions show at the end, Wayne? Secondhand Lions, what was that, Lions? Is that it? Secondhand Lions, and at the end of the movie, they say, that guy really lived. If you really want to live, you got to go to the source of life, and that's Jesus Christ. Verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this, a man named Jones, just kidding. Remember that guy? Jones, don't drink the Kool-Aid Jones. Jonestown. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him, and he too perished. And all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men, let them alone, for if this plan or action is from men, it will be overthrown. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may be found fighting against God. And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. And so they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy, worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching. It's unstoppable. Preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. So Gamaliel, this guy, he's a, he's a very respected and very influential teacher in this day. And he is like... A cool voice of wisdom, I think, among hotheads in this group. Uh, he, he gives some hope, I think, for us that minds can change about Jesus. Did you pick up on his, uh, his, his mindset? It's almost like he's, he's in the process of changing his mind about who Jesus is. Uh, I think he's starting to see we're just going to be fighting against God here. If we try to take these guys out, he reminds them of two recent hit examples from history uh, where, where movements were rising up and they went away. 
probably false messiah type movements. And so his advice, rather than start a bloodbath, is that they just leave the church alone. He says, if God's with it, you won't be able to stop it, and you might find yourself fighting against God. And something's telling me that he's starting to believe. Thankfully, though, uh, they take his advice, and they only end up flogging them. Uh, and that's basically, uh, they, were, they were only, only, we say only, beaten and whipped, kind of like Jesus was, with 39 lashes from a leather whip. Um, I think Jesus uh, suffered a Roman flogging, much worse. They were putting him to death. These probably received whips with a, uh, received lashes with a, a leather whip that didn't have all the bone and stuff in it that Jesus' whip had. This is a, a whipping that the current Pharisee right now, and soon to be Apostle Paul, he's going to receive this lashing five times. And yet, notice that neither Paul nor the disciples end up angry and bitter and questioning God for it. They think that this is something worthy. They found, they're, they're found worthy to suffer for the gospel. They actually leave rejoicing. Did you catch that? They went on their way, on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing. Paul, after a life of hardship, he's sitting in a Roman prison waiting for his head to be chopped off. He's received this lashing five times. He can speak of being without anxiety, full of rejoicing and content in Christ. Philippians 4, right? Isn't that amazing? See, but that's what Jesus can do for a life. When God is your comfort, you'll be miserable in this world, but when God is your comfort, you're going to find deep, unending joy. You can find hope. You can find peace. You can find contentment because you know that no matter what happens, you know God is in control. He's in control over all of that. You know that he's going to fulfill his promises to you. So your hope is not in your comfort. Your comfort is not your God. Your God is your comfort. You know he's in control. He's going to fulfill his promises to you. Paul even looked at his jail time as a divine opportunity to share the gospel with people, with the guards that were there. He says, God's working even while I'm in prison. He's, he's influ influencing very, uh, very key figures in Rome. And he, he writes, takes the time in prison to write letters to the churches that, that we enjoy. No wonder he, he was without anxiety and he's rejoicing and he was content. He knew God's in control. He knew God would fulfill his promises. And that's the kind of God we have. He's a God of oxymorons. You can suffer. Even when suffering happens, you can rejoice. Uh, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Who thinks of dying as gain? Well, with Jesus, death brings life. Even when there's apparent defeats, God brings victory. God brings victory. Nothing stops God's plan in the end from emerging victorious. Even when it seems like wicked is winning the day, God is going to emerge victorious. And we are always on the right side of history. And our future is always magnificent, no matter what the future looks like for us. No matter what circumstances we go through. At the end of the day, Jesus wins. Amen? Here's what Paul said in Romans 8. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring it who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? All of these awful things? No. None of it can separate us. He says, actually, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. He works all things for the good of those who love him. And the apostles can rejoice because they have eternal perspective. They know that they're part of something that will matter forever and that, that, that no one can take from them. They can take my life, but they can't take my eternity. They can't take my Jesus. I can't imagine getting to the end of my life and and realizing that I've lived for the wrong thing my entire life. But then think of getting to the end of your life and you look back and you say, you know, I actually spent my life living for that which is going to matter for 10,000 years from now and forever. And like C.S. Lewis said, I've, you're going you're gonna to get to heaven, you're going to realize you've barely even opened the cover of the book. That really your, your, your story's really only just begun. Some folks live as if this life is the only life they get, but as soon as you cross over onto heaven's shores, you're going to realize you've barely opened the cover of an endless book that God is writing. And in his book, the gospel advances, and the question that we've got to answer is, are we going to be a part of it? Are we going to be a part of the gospel advancing in the world? Am I going to be willing, and am I going to be available to be used of God, to glorify Him, and be used of Him in, in something, in a mission that is going to matter forever? Am I going to say, Lord, use me in your story?